1: to value listeners this week on the show you're going to hear from Dr. Neil Wagley and he's the chief medical officer at Devoted Health and this is a company that we wanted to profile on the podcast for quite some time. Uh, Devoted Health is a a company that designs Medicare Advantage plans for seniors but there's so much more than just an MA plan. You know, they've really built this different model of care and it starts with knowing their members on a personal level and earning their trust. I mean, that's the epitome of relationship-based care. And they're providing virtual and in-home care. They have full-service guides with the world-class proprietary technology that powers everything that they do. You know, Dan, I really think this is a company that's a leading innovator in value-based care. You
0: know, Eric, I couldn't agree more. Listeners, you're going to enjoy hearing from Dr. Neil Wagley. He knows a thing or two about transforming health care. He's an internal medicine physician by training and spent six years at Partners Healthcare, which is now Mass General Brigham, leading the system's efforts to improve the quality of care for their patients. And in 2017, he joined Devoted Health, which was a $12.7 billion health insurance startup. And as its chief medical officer, he's spearheading the development of a model of care aimed at improving the health of older Americans by getting them the right care at the right time, while saving costs for the US healthcare system. I'm really excited for you to have this opportunity to hear from Dr. Wagle.
1: Well, I share in that excitement and every week we are committed to providing you with the top leaders and innovators in the value economy. And if you like what you hear, please continue to tune in week after week. Feel free to subscribe to our newsletter at racetovalue.org, and if you're so inclined, we'd love to get a review or in a rating on Apple Podcasts. So without further delay, let's now hear from Dr. Neil Wagley as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Neil, welcome to the Race to Value. We're so excited to have you on this week's podcast. As we start our conversation today, can you share with our listeners how your journey with devoted health? has evolved over the last few years, and what interests you most about some of these big challenges in healthcare?
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I started off doing far more bench research than I probably should have, eight years or so. It took me a lot longer to realize that I wasn't cut out for the bench than I it, than it probably should have. In that time, I was involved in a couple of startup companies. I loved playing this role of a translator or synthesizer between the medical scientific world and, and the business world. And that led me to business school where I first really fully appreciated the plight of American healthcare. But it wasn't until I was a resident at the Brigham shadowing a mentor of mine named Tom Lee, who really showed me uh, what was possible in, in, in value-based care. And I was fortunate enough to be in the room Um, at the Prudential Building here in in Boston, when Gary Gottlieb, who was then the CEO of Mass General Brigham, the largest healthcare system in Massachusetts, signed Mass General Brigham's first value-based contract. So it was this moment when the Affordable Care Act was paving the way for other value-based contracts. And I'll never forget what he said at the time, which is, well, we're probably going to lose $70 million in the first year, but we're going to do it because it's the right way to care for patients. And at that moment, my head exploded. And I said, Tom, what can I do to help? Uh, and it's what landed me in my first job in population health and quality at uh, National Brigham. And at the same time, I was a practicing PCP at the Brigham. And I was watching these incredible, intelligent, caring providers do their best to care for their panelists, but not always living up to their own expectations. And we were in the midst of a, an EHR change at the time. and I saw, So I saw a lot of providers retiring, going concierge, saw this alarming um, rate of burnout in a system that I dearly love with people who I dearly loved. And it made me a little bit nervous about the future of healthcare. So then in 2017, I was uh, expecting my career to continue where it was. Devoted was just getting started and I had coffee with Ed Park who's the, the founder, uh, along with Todd Park, of, of Devoted. And I'd have coffee with him at a Starbucks across from my house. And we spent 90 minutes talking about what a new kind of all-in-one healthcare company would be like. A company that did, you know, whatever was necessary, from payer to provider uh, to care for the elderly. And I still have the notes and the diagrams that we, we made during that time. We ended up talking through a bunch of the practical details about how ridiculously challenging that would be to build a system like this that could radically transform healthcare. But as I left that meeting, I, I left with stars in my eyes and I talked to a guy named Bob Kocher um, and to Todd Park, who are two of the most amazing people that I know. And ended up putting my safe career to the side and jumping into uncharted waters uh, with both feet. And it was definitely the best decision that I've ever made professionally.
1: Well, Neil, I'd like to now engage you on a topic that I know is very close to your heart and provides you with a passion to lead a transformation of healthcare in our country. And that's provider burnout. I mean, it's one of the major crises in healthcare, along with rising costs and inadequate care for aging Americans. And we have to have strategies to ameliorate the suffering of our provider workforce so we can actually solve for the other two challenges. And researchers have shown that there's a clear and undeniable correlation between provider health and well-being and the improvement of population health outcomes for the patients they serve. I mean, we now have this quadruple aim that includes now physician satisfaction. It's one of the most important aspects of value-based care. And we're just now beginning to recognize how important that is in the value equation the predominant world of fee-for-service reimbursement has created an epidemic of suffering that's affecting over half of the physicians in practice, and a recent Harvard report even called Provider Burnout a Public Health Crisis that Urgently Demands Action. And you and I talked a few weeks ago about how some physicians are even going as far as to saying that the profession is dealing with moral injury because the word burnout's insulting and an insufficient describing the pain that they feel when the system prevents doctors from doing what's right by patients. So how is Devoted Health able to alter the behaviors of clinicians who have been traditionally paid under fee-for-service? You know, they're on that hamster wheel and actually guide them to a transformation in care so that they, they can ultimately rejuvenate their practice of medicine and and also improve the, uh, the morale of their workforce. And also, what is your perspective on how value-based care can create a healthcare renaissance that unleashes healing potential, and returns medicine to its altruistic underpinnings?
2: It's a fantastic question, and it's really the ball game, right? It's, it, that is the underpinnings of everything else that we do. As I was mentioning, our country's clinical workforce has been stretched way beyond their capacity, and the pandemic has only exacerbated that burnout and I, by the way, I love your point that it's more than burnout. It is a moral injury to providers because they mostly got into this profession because they loved caring for people, right? It was a calling. We always talk about that. That's, what, that's why providers are in this business. There are other things that these really intelligent people could have done, um, but they did this because they care, right? They cared about caring for others. And yet their ability to connect with others has been decimated by overbooked 15-minute visits. It it is the rule now that providers look at their computer and document instead of looking at their patient in the eye while they're discussing their most intimate details. And then we ask them, uh, there's this phenomenon called pajama time, which uh, you or your listeners may be familiar with, where providers have to spend their time at night completing their documentation instead of relaxing with their family. And so you you have this uh, series of moral injuries that are taking more and more of the meaning out of why people got into this profession. And you therefore see increases in retirements and reductions in hours. And this great resignation in the country was actually way worse in healthcare. It's that fee-for-service model that really drives this hamster wheel you were talking about, right? The fee-for-service model requires that we do more with less. But there's actually a different way. You can actually take these three crises, the provider burnout crisis, the aging population, and the healthcare cost crisis and send it in the other direction. And how you do that, you should always start with care. You should always ask yourself: like, what would we really need to do to care for an aging population in the way that they need to be cared for? And if you start with that question, the answer is obvious. You would need to spend time listening to their priorities, educating, coaching, having rapid cycles with them where you where you you know, have contact with them frequently, way more time than is possible in clinical models today, in a fee-for-service model. The great news about that is that's exactly what most clinicians want. They want to spend more time, right? It's not like you're dragging them uh, in the other direction from what they want. This is what they want to do. Even better news, if you do this, if you actually enable providers to connect with patients in the way they want to, Patients get better. So you end up healing that aging population, taking better care of them, and they cost less because they have fewer hospitalizations because they're healthier. So it turns out that better healthcare is usually less expensive than worse healthcare. But one of the keys to this is that you have to be able to monetize those fewer hospitalizations. If you can't, you can't make this model work financially. And that's where value-based contracting comes in. So so then it all works, right? You give providers more time and space. You enable them with sometimes expensive technology. They're able to do what they love, care for patients. The patients stay healthier and you save in costs for preventing admissions that cost 10 to 20,000 per admission. And that pays for all of that extra time and those successes with the patient. So once the providers start seeing these successes with the patient, that's the emotional fuel that they need to keep going in the profession for years to come. That is what drives people when they say, ah, I did something good today. I helped somebody. That's what wants them, makes them wake up in the morning and say, I want to do this again today.
0: Dr. Wagley, I'd love to talk to you now about the state of our healthcare industry coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. I think the American public has a new appreciation for what care could look like. And this new wave of healthcare consumerism is causing a much needed recalibration of care delivery as we know it. This isn't just about virtual care delivered to the home, even though the proliferation and scale of telehealth enablement has really been revolutionary. It's also about virtually enabled person-centered care models that are convenient and focused on upstream interventions. Using the technologies that we have now, we seem to be making strides. However, we can't seem to reach our full potential because traditional payment models don't work that well to sustain the progress. If we can somehow muster the political and social capital to address the well-known macroeconomic challenges of healthcare and shift the paradigm to value-based care, we could overcome the Byzantine maze of flawed economic incentives. And you and I spoke a few weeks ago and you shared optimism for the future of our industry. And with regard to Devoted Health in particular, you even stated that one of the positive things from the pandemic was that it catalyzed for your business real transformation that could be sustained in the long term. So, can you discuss for our audience how devoted health is tackling the systemic challenges of underinvestment and proactive, holistic, and preventive care? And how did the pandemic allow the devoted health model to succeed?
2: So, thanks for that question. Let me say, first of all, that COVID is a horrible tragedy. We're still losing lives every single day. And if I could not have COVID have happened, Certainly I would do that, right? I would never wish this on any country or our world in the way it has, it has landed. I will say that the pandemic forced our system broadly, to your point, to move to innovate at a speed that's usually not seen in healthcare. COVID exposed cracks in our fee-for-service model where, you know, if you can't make money unless people are coming to the door and nobody's coming in the door, that is not necessarily a great model. And it parked a lot of innovation on the virtual care front, right? So you saw telehealth actually be a real great boon for care because it can increase frequency of touches and convenience. And I'll talk a little bit more about Devoted. But it seems to have lawmakers a little spooked. And that's because uh, fee-for-service telehealth may be opening, they worry, a new channel to generate charges. I recently, as a patient, you know, I saw these messages come through for me and my, my family, my kids that now provided, my providers are letting me know that phone calls and even responses to portal messages might incur charges now, right? Which is new. And I get that, right? Like we've, we've often, we've, for a long time, we had this problem where we wanted our workforce, our healthcare workforce to do all this stuff, but it wasn't reimbursed in any way. The problem is like in a fee-for-service model, you kind of get the incentives wrong and you, 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 you spook people out, right? Because it's maybe it may be raising costs without delivering that much added value. So value-based care is actually the ideal home for virtual care services because you don't have to worry about overutilization, right? You, you utilize as much as you need to get the right outcomes. So Devoted Health is an all-in-one health care company on a mission to dramatically improve the health and well-being of older Americans by caring for every person as if they were a beloved member of our family. So what does that mean? Devoted Medical, the first virtual and in-home medical group serving the specific needs of a Medicare population, is a cornerstone of the all-in-one healthcare offering. The all-in-one healthcare offering also includes a devoted health Medicare Advantage plan, like including a full network of PCPs and specialists and hospitals and supplementary benefits, dental, vision, hearing, full service guides that coordinate a member's care and respond to their needs a single software platform that enables all of that work. And it's important to note that in our model, you keep your PCP and that's key, especially for telehealth. So you keep your PCP, but Devoted Medical surrounds you and your PCP, strengthen that relationship, but also make sure that all the care that you need happens. Recognizing the burdens on, you know, primary care doctors on the hamster wheel doing their best to do what they need to do, but sometimes falling short, as systems do, and Devoted Medical surrounds you and makes sure all those things get done. Medicare Advantage is the payment structure that supports that model. So all that additional care that Devoted Medical is providing is completely free for patients um, with Devoted Health footing the bill. And that enables us to reach and provide the highest quality care for Medicare eligible beneficiaries. Our guiding principle in this is that we care for every member, every patient, as if they were a beloved member of our family. And the word we use when we're thinking about this, and, and, and you'll hear this come up as I talk about the model, um, is that we're trying to deliver complete, coordinated and customized care. So let me talk a little bit about how that worked with telehealth. So I, I firmly believe that regardless of the pandemic, we would have gotten to this model anyway, but the pandemic certainly catalyzed a lot of this work. So in March of 2020, We were not doing a lot of virtual care. We planned to do it, but we were mostly in-home. Once the pandemic struck, there was faster uptake of telehealth technology among seniors. You know, I think before 2020, had we asked people to use Zoom or even FaceTime or Duo or whatever, seniors would have been like, I don't know how to do that. That's a bridge too far for me. But after the pandemic struck, they got used to using all of these modalities And so suddenly, it's not such a stretch for them to use it for healthcare. Now, remember, we are working with primary care providers, not taking over as the PCP. I'm really excited about these companies that have popped up to be virtual first PCPs, and I hope that they succeed. But what is clear to me is that people are reticent to let go of their in-person human PCP and go to a virtual first PCP. I think what it is, is loss aversion, right? When it comes to something important like your healthcare, you're not willing to let go of the thing that you know. But what you are willing to do, or what what it turns out our patient population has been willing to do, is to have some care that they see as supplementary, as additional to be virtual first, particularly when it's coming from somebody they really trust. And so I think that 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 combination of people being willing to accept virtual care and the care that we're providing being supplementary has enabled us to really convert in many ways to being a virtual organization. An overwhelming majority of our care now is done virtually. We do still go into the home often, but there's a lot that we can achieve virtually. And, And I'll just say one more thing which is about the benefits of a virtual first uh, mentality for scale, not just the financial aspects of, of scale, but one of the things that has become really obvious is that having a virtual company, a virtual clinic is super important to have a single unified culture. Let's go deeper
1: on the power of technology and as, Neil, as we think about this race to value, we must consider how technology can optimize workflow and create actionable insights to drive interventions and population health. And we can't support patients throughout the care delivery continuum without understanding their medical complexity and their social challenges. And that's only possible when primary care groups are able to leverage analytical platforms that support population health management strategies. And technology can help identify and address populations with the disproportionately higher burden of disease and help providers implement specific individualized interventions that can mitigate the risk of costly complications that can have a significant impact on the quality of care. And to capitalize on the potential for analytics and value-based care, I know Devoted Health has developed a proprietary end-to-end data and technology system that choreographs literally everything that needs to be done to deliver single vertically integrated tech-enabled healthcare service, and I'm really interested in how the company uses this information technology platform to capitalize on the promise of clinical workflow optimization and efficiency, something that, quite frankly, we have not seen in the case of electronic health records that are burdensome on providers and built on a transactional fee-for-service chassis. How does the Devoted Health Technology Platform support its provider partners and planning the most effective patient interventions. And also, I'd love to better understand how workforce enablement with technology can be delivered in a way that doesn't overwhelm or inundate physicians.
2: Yeah, so it's funny. When I hear you talking about technology, I, I have even now like sort of a little bit of a visceral reaction. Because of the roles I've had, I, I think a lot of clinicians are in this boat. You know, I've heard from company after company pitching technologies as a panacea. And so like many providers, I have this inherent skepticism about that, that technology is our way out of this problem. But folks like Ed Park and the, the, other, the other folks we have here who, who come from a technology background, they've taught me a, different, a very different way of thinking about technology. So we, we felt that we really needed to build the whole technology stack from the ground up because existing technology is all designed around fee-for-service medicine, first of all. And secondly, the existing technology landscape is incredibly fragmented. So it's impossible to get a single view of a human being. And so as we've built our technology, we have achieved two really important things. The first thing is that our technology stack and data infrastructure does everything end to end, from sales to enrollment to pharmacy, medical claims, prior authorizations, customer service, and our full EHR, right, so, and more. As long as you have the right guardrails in place for PHI, having all that information in a single place allows us to deliver on this promise of complete and coordinated customized care in a way that I I haven't actually seen before. The second really interesting approach to technology that happens in this company is that we use technology to enable human beings. So there's this mantra in Devoted called people problem process. It kind of turns what a lot of us have done as we approach problems on its head a little bit. So we don't start with the software. We don't start even with the process of how we're going to take care of people. We actually start with incredible individuals who who, who know a problem really well, and we point them at the problem and say, go do what you do. Do what you have to do. And then after they've done it a hundred times, our technology team, so product folks, engineers, data scientists, they come in and they watch. They watch what these experts are doing. And then they can say, like as they see them doing it, like, wow, you're wasting a ton of time on this step, or I can do this part for you, or I can help make this easier. Reducing something that takes a minute to something that takes a second. And if you do that again and again, 20 times, a hundred times, you end up freeing the human from a bunch of busy work that wasn't utilizing their unique skills and talents so they can focus on the thing that makes them special, right? The reason they got into this business. So not only does it make them faster and more efficient, it actually unlocks the reason they got into healthcare. So as we're thinking about how we, how we utilize this, first, all the data is in one place, right? So we have that single system, all the data is in one place. And that allows us to scan the population for needs in a more powerful way than I've seen before. And that's how we target our interventions. So at the most basic level, we know these are the folks who haven't had their A1C measured or these are the folks whose A1C is out of control. But that's true for blood pressure and heart failure and chronic kidney disease and ESRD. But it's also true for people who are at risk. Right. So people who we know are frail or elderly, people who are likely to have readmissions, et cetera. Right. So we use this all this data for targeting. Second, the people who are interacting with the patient are looking at the whole patient. And so right on the home screen of any particular member or patient, we have information like their spouse's birthday or their pet's name or other points of connection. We have people who, when they're on the phone, you know, they're like, wait a minute, tomorrow's your birthday, and then they sing them happy birthday. And that, that kind of information like, enables this tiger bond, um, which is key to our, our whole model. In a related point, right? Like the team can see what other interactions the patients have had with us. So nobody ever says, "Oh, I'm not sure about that. You'll have to call back and talk to you know some other person." Instead, they can say something like, "Oh yeah, I can see that you spoke to Ashley last week. She uh, made sure that your new walker is going to be delivered you know tomorrow. It lo- looks like it's going to arrive on time." That kind of holistic experience for someone is you know a big part of what's lacking in, in people's healthcare experience today. Fourth, the technology is able to supercharge humans. I I, I think back to most of the practices that I've seen and been a part of where we have these practice meetings where folks tell us, you know, we're not doing as well as we need to do on um, depression screening. And so please everybody make sure you do your depression screening. And then the next week it's, hey, we really need to do more fall screening, please like make sure you do your fall screening. And then like, don't forget, you know, we have to, it's a big push for this. And over time it's just, remember this, don't forget this don't forget this and your mind at, at some point is like how can i remember all of those things right you can't possibly uh especially when you're trying to do you know human connection so what we do is we say don't remember anything let the software remember everything for you all we want you to do is connect have your clinical antennae up educate treat like do the thing you were meant to do let the software take care of it. And that that has been really important for our care. And then finally, you know, the technology enables these rapid cycles. So much of care is momentum. And when we use the technology to like quickly bring in data, flag a human being to then rapidly iterate on someone's care, we can capitalize on that momentum and and yield better results.
0: Dr. Wagley, as a national leader in value-based care, I'd love to get your take on what the word value really means. Value-based care will never really work unless people, including the patients, understand the truest aims of the movement. It's not just about payment models and ACOs, and it's definitely not about rationing care like we saw with HMOs during the 90s. Care delivery within a value-based construct is all about patient-centered, relationship-driven, tech-enabled care that's delivered by interdisciplinary teams with a keen emphasis on primary care. But even talking about value-based care in that way makes it difficult to make a personal connection to the underlying purpose of the movement. In 2007, the IHI attempted to define value-based care with a triple aim, i.e. population health, patient experience, and lower per capita health care costs. But we found out over time that physician well-being needed to be added. And interestingly, it then took a pandemic and a social justice movement to elevate our social awareness of health disparities, such that health equity became the ultimate aim for reforming our healthcare system. And so now value has since been redefined as the quintuple aim. And I think this overarching focus on equity should really be the North Star that holds the key to a universal understanding of value-based care in our country. And coming out of the pandemic, while also reeling in issues pertaining to civil rights, our society is now beginning to understand the long-standing injustices and systemic inequities in underserved communities. And this consciousness of equity is now being translated into the re-engineering of payment models, thankfully. I'd love for you to provide your personal definition of value and how that translates to equity and health through empowered community relationships. And how is Devoted Health addressing health equity in its innovative model through dashboards, community guides, and social clubs to foster community connection?
2: yeah health health equity is such an important focus for the healthcare system i'm, I'm so glad it's it's finally getting the attention it deserves you know i, re- I remember you know I'm, i come from a, mem- a measurement background right i was the associate chief quality officer at, at mgb and there was this huge debate a decade ago about whether you should adjust your outcomes to account for demographic factors and it wasn't obvious actually what the answer was right because if a system serves an underserved population that statistically performs worse, should that system be penalized for that? But on the other hand, if you adjust for those factors, aren't you lowering the bar for that population? Right? So like, what's the right thing to do? And I'm glad that we actually just moved away from that debate. I think this, the, the, the world, the country has moved to a different place where we're just shining a spotlight on equity itself rather than burying it in adjustment methodologies for, for other measures. Anyone who has um, thought about the care of a population has that chart seared into their brain that shows how much of clinical outcomes are determined by clinical care versus genetics versus behaviors versus social determinants of health. We all know that clinical care, which is the lever that we jump to first often, is not necessarily as big a driver as those other factors. And social determinants of health are particularly um, important. Even if you don't know that chart, we, we, we understand Maslow's hierarchy, right? You can't meaningfully engage on your blood sugar or your blood pressure if you have food insecurity. So we start with a team called uh, Community Guides. And our Community Guides really focus on food and housing, government benefits, prescription assistance, like whatever it, would ta- it takes for people to make better those, um, those social determinants of health. We end up serving a huge chunk of our population with these programs, and they're they're really significantly better off as a result. So, for example, anyone who we end up helping apply for Medicaid or SNAP or low income sim- subsidies, each successful application means three hundred and twenty-five dollars on average in a member's pocket every month, right? And that is a game changer for that person. That. Unlocks our ability to then start talking to them about their health. So, w- once we start looking from a clinical perspective, as our giant data warehouse allows us to do with equity in mind, and we create these dashboards where we look at outcomes cut by um, various factors, at least based on what we're looking at to date, I'm really pleased to say that we're doing fantastic from an equity perspective. So among populations who traditionally have been left behind by the healthcare system, Devoted is seeing incredible clinical outcomes on par or sometimes even better than the populations we'd expect to perform well. And I think the reason this is, is that our data system is so good at surfacing needs and gaps, and our clinical operations so good at closing those gaps that it acts as this counterbalancing force to inequities.
1: Dr. Wagle, you spoke earlier about how technology can help us with clinical innovation and care delivery. And I'd also like to talk about non-clinical care innovations, and that certainly ties into health equity. I mean, we have to reimagine healthcare by focusing on these non-clinical care innovations. I mean, to fundamentally transform something, as Jack Welch once said, you have to build a model that makes the existing model obsolete. And that obsolescence will come about through improved population health outcomes that reorients expectations for what healthcare delivery should actually be about. And why can't America, like other parts of the world called blue zones, where people typically live to be a hundred years old with much lower incidence of chronic disease, you know, happen here. And when you look at these blue zone regions, they all have communities that are supported by Spiritual, family, and social networks, and they all subsist on mostly a plant based diet. And according to Devoted Health CEO Ed Park, the product goal of Devoted Health is to be the world's first virtual blue zone, analogous to areas like Okinawa, Japan, and Loma Linda, California, where people enjoy much longer, healthier lives than average. Could you expound on this goal and explain how Devoted Health is creating this virtual blue zone in healthcare delivery? through its focus on physical function, quality of life and mental health.
2: I think it's I think the place to start is to think about what you want, what you would want for your loved one or for yourself as you get older. It's it's not just longevity. Though longevity is important, right? So and on longevity, the bigger problem in healthcare is no longer that we lack treatment or cures. It's that people don't get the treatments we know could help them. So task number one for our healthcare system is to make sure that we get really good at doing all the things we know help. Let's prevent all the heart attacks, strokes, cancer, and kidney care that are preventable with the tools that are, we already have, right? So that's the living longer part of the blue zone. But if we did that, would we be done? I, we would not, right? So for my parents who took such good care of me, I want more than that. I don't want them to just be alive. I want them to be happy and fulfilled. And those are things that are difficult to measure. And we can talk more about how to measure them. But in principle, what I want for them as I think about them aging is I want them to be able to do the things they want to do. I want them to feel happy and connected rather than anxious or depressed. I want them to feel fulfilled with the life that they had. And that's the idea of the blue zone, right? So this idea where people live longer, more free of disease, more functional, more happier. So what we're trying to do is to say, wherever devoted goes, we want the people in the population that we're caring for to be in like this virtual blue zone, right? Where they're living longer, more free of disease, more functional, happier. Those are the outcomes. Those are the lives that we want for our loved ones or for ourselves, and that's what we want for our population. So there's a lot to unpack there. One of the things is that we know that healthcare is a team sport, right? Particularly for seniors, but really for everyone, right? Even for me, I would be lost in my own care if my wife didn't know what was going on with me, right? And vice versa. So we make caregivers and family members a centerpiece of the care we deliver. We ask about it whenever we begin to engage with the patient. We say, like, who do you want to be involved? How do we get in touch with them? And by the way, when we talk to people about this, they're like, oh, thank goodness, right? Like, th- thank you for saying that. Like, thank you for including me. And the family members, they, you know, a- a- as much as our technology is supercharging our clinicians, the family members are also supercharging our clinicians. Or you can't do this alone. But sometimes that's not enough, right? So, so that's important as a, as a foundation um, for what we're doing but we also are trying to go deeper. During the pandemic, we began to shine a spotlight on loneliness and social isolation, which was a problem long before the pandemic, but like so many other things, was severely exacerbated by the pandemic. Two of our leaders, uh, Marianne Brody and, and Sam Clark, started this program called Devoted Social Club, which brought folks together once a week to connect, but also to build tools for resilience. And it was, amazing to see seniors uh, respond to this, right? They raved about it. They, They really touched a need. What was also interesting is that not only did it touch these seniors' lives, also the employees who were sort of, you know, would take an hour out of their week to be part of these groups as group leaders derived incredible benefit from being a part of them. And I think what that highlights is like a real deep need that we have to not just, you know, think about longevity and outcomes like that. And not just think about the heart outcomes, but think about the whole person, their spiritual life, their connectedness, um, and and their overall health.
0: So early in the interview, we talked with you about your passion to lead in value-based care. And it seems that the mission to treat every plan member like a family member makes devoted health so much more than a Medicare Advantage plan. And I'd love to learn more about the company culture that you've described and how it energizes a employees who believe in the mission and understand how to achieve it. So how are you and other leaders at Devoted Health creating a new standard that's exemplified within the culture where members get proactive, deeply empathetic, individually tailored care rather than the reactive one-size-fits-all system that the country has today? And how does that distinctive culture differentiate Devoted Health and the Medicare Advantage landscape?
2: This is a good, good moment for me to just pause for a second and say that While I get to be here talking about the work we're doing, this work is the product of a ton of people coming together. And they are the most big-hearted, intelligent, hardworking, and loving people that I can imagine. From the leadership of the company to the leadership of our clinical team to literally every person who touches a patient. It is the foundation of this company, is the people and the culture. And I really, truly believe that we couldn't do all the other things that we're talking about if we didn't have the people in the culture that we have. Though we're building programs and technology, every single thing we do reaches our members, our patients through the mouths and the hands of a human being. And so as we are growing, I and other leaders, I, I think of it as my A principal responsibility to maintain the culture that we have as we grow, right? We're growing really fast and we have to hold on to that culture um, and not, not let ourselves slide back into closer to the mean. The, the nice thing about that, by the way, is that as we grow, there's actually more momentum for the culture, right? It doesn't need to be carried by a few people. We're all, we, we talk about the culture and this mission so much that now it has its own momentum. Um, and even if uh, some of us were to leave, right? Like they, 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 the, the company would carry on with that moment. It requires constant vigilance. So how do we get that? I think the key, there's, there's two really important things. One is starting with the right people, right? You have to start with the right substrate. So, so as, we, as we go out and look for, for people to bring onto the team, we look for three things. We look for experience, We look for clinical acumen and we look for love in your heart. The average tenure of our clinicians is eight years, right? They're not, they're people who really understand clinical medicine and we have these evaluations as people are coming on to to see whether they have the clinical acumen, the clinical acumen that we're looking for. Gauging the love in people's heart is a harder thing to do. And it's absolutely critical. And, and you know, you, you kind of know it when you see it, but it is, a, it is an actual criterion that we use as we evaluate people coming in. I was interviewing a physician who, who is now on staff, her name is Rabia Chowdhury. And she was telling me about her career and she, she for the first, I, th- I think for the last decade or so, she's been first call for a system of nursing homes, six days a week, right? Including Saturdays, right? that is hard. That's really hard. So I asked her during the interview, I said, when that phone rings on Saturday, how do you feel? And I expected her to say like, well, you know, it's never fun getting a call on Saturday, but you know, we need to do it to take care of patients, right? Like that would be a typical answer. But she said, I feel great because if they're calling me, that means they need my help. And usually I can help them. And that's the kind of passion that we really look for um, as we're hiring folks. So, that, that, the, so starting with the right substrate is key. The second thing is then that you have to really care for your people. So you take these great people; they come with this mission orientation. We give them the time and space that they've that they've been looking for that they haven't had, right? And then you have got to treat them with kindness and respect, because. It is hard what they do, even in the best circumstances. We gonna make things as good as possible. It's still, they are helping really sick people in the hardest moments of their life in a system that is really difficult to navigate, right? So it's draining. It's hard. And so you need to care for these people so that they have a reservoir of patience, right? They have that peace inside them that allows them when they're faced with the tribulations of healthcare, they don't just... You know, they aren't short with somebody or you know, take a shortcut or don't do, don't go the extra mile. They have that reservoir from which they can pull to do to go the extra mile for our patients. So that, that that's I think how you start to generate this culture. And and the really good news is it is in some ways a self-perpetuating phenomenon. So in this moment where a lot of folks are having trouble hiring clinicians. We are having less trouble with that. And it's because you have these great clinicians who are like, wow, this is, what it, this, this is it. You know, this is what I've been looking for. And they go and they tell their other like-minded clinicians looking for something similar, like, hey, he, it, it's here. And those people come and find us. And then we're all on this, this ship together. The last thing that I think is worth mentioning is that, just to zoom out a second, you know, as as I thought about devoted health, everybody in my network told me that these were the people who were going to change healthcare. And you know, it's back in 2017. I was like, wait a minute, I've got this good, nice, safe job, and I don't know who these people are. But um, as I did my homework, people said like they're going to execute well, and they're going to keep the mission at the center. And that mission, we call it the prime directive, which is nerdy but awesome. Um, the prime directive is close your eyes whenever you're faced with a decision close your eyes think of someone who you love desperately think about what you would want to have happen for that person and open your eyes and do it and that clarity is so liberating for the people in this company because it's a great last test for everything everyone does and allows us to, like, keep the compass facing north.
1: Wow, that's that's truly powerful, Neil. I mean, this culture at Devoted Health, I mean, it's really centered around love and relationships. And if successful in cultivating these trusting relationships with your members, just like their family members, I mean, it could truly be possible that patients can overcome their mistrust of the healthcare system, which in many populations goes back generations in their family, especially in uh, underserved and minoritized communities. I mean, how does the development of deep trust and true devotion to members provide clinical interventions and non-clinical interventions based on love and emotional support to right the wrongs of a broken healthcare system. I mean, things that we well know in terms of misaligned incentives and structural racism. Uh, And how is this focused on relationship-based care proving out in performance metrics like clinical outcomes, STARS measures, and net promoter scores?
2: Here's the recipe. There's a a recipe to it that we we have happened upon. You start by doing right by folks, just being really nice to people and helping them solve their problems. If that for us starts with what the people we call guides, right? The guides in other places might be called customer service, but to us, they are a lot more than that. When, when people call us, we don't have a big IVR tree that people go through. It goes straight to a human. I think we, we just ask one question like English or, or a different language and um, then, 90% of the time, we pick up the call in 30 seconds or less. And then the guide will spend as long as it takes. I was on a call, um, just listening to a call. We do, we do this thing called uh, Project Guided, um, where, where we get to just sort of shadow a guide, right? So senior leaders shadowing the frontline staff on the guide side. And I, was, I participated, or I listened in on a call that was an hour long. Where the member called in was just irate about an issue she had with the dentist, where they told her something wrong. And, you know, like when you think about it, like devoted help did nothing wrong here, right? Like she was having a problem with her dentist. And yet, like, never once did this person, this guy that I was shadowing, pass the buck or say like, that's not our fault. Never. Right. He was like, oh my God, that sounds awful. Right. And just like, just listen to her rant uh, about this situation again for a long time. And it was like, all right, we're going to fix this. And then just like went on and on and on, like step by step. And then, you know, it pulled, it ended up pulling out more complaints, but I listened to him like so expertly just take her pain, take her struggles, take her frustration, and then roll with it. And treat her in a way that by the end of the conversation, she was laughing. She was, she, she like wouldn't get off the phone actually. She was like having such a good time talking to this guide. Um, and he spent a, an hour and three minutes, right? So I was on the call, an hour and three minutes. That is the start, right? Like that is what leads us to a net promoter score of 79, which is really unheard of, particularly like this was a person interacting with their health plan, not their medical group. 79 is unheard of for a for health plan. Mm-hmm. That trust, that like relationship that we built does something critical for our clinical care. Because when, when normally when somebody gets a call or a text message, They ignore it. That's what I do, right? I'm sad to say, right? Like I get a phone call or text message. It's like, hey, we'd like to blah, blah, blah. And it's blah, 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 right? I I don't care. But when we call, when devoted calls, because we're so nice to people and we help them when they need it, they give us the benefit of the doubt. That one thing is essential to what we call the funnel, right? Getting the people who need stuff to getting that thing. If they will give us the benefit of the doubt to just pick up the phone, call us back, text us back, it's the foot in the door that leads us to funnel rates or acceptance rates that are way beyond industry standard. Once we have our foot in the door, we then have to rapidly engage and build trust. And we do that by starting out with the patient priorities, not ours, not, hey, I'm calling you to lower your A1C or control your blood pressure. We start with what would you like to be better in your life? We call that, that's called patient priorities care. Then we use data. We use rapid cycles, the momentum that I was talking about earlier. Meanwhile, we're helping them with food and housing, and we're sending somebody to their home with an eye exam camera. We're talking to their daughter three states away. And all that engagement makes it much more likely for them to get to the finish line and achieve success in their care and like, lead us to those clinical outcomes um, that, that we really care about.
0: As we talk about the performance measurement issues, I know you're a proponent of patient-reported outcomes. And by knowing the outcomes that matter to patients, teams can develop insight on what approaches work best and for which patients. Ideally, clinicians would track and analyze a patient's current status and trends to guide clinical decisions, shared clinical decision-making, and process improvement. So in your view, why are measuring outcomes that matter to patients a key ingredient to quality performance in patient-centered value-based care?
2: You have to measure the heart outcomes, right? I don't, I don't think anyone's advocating for leaving aside things like mortality and hospitalizations and um, heart attack rates or, you know, hemoglobin A1Cs, or blood pressures. Like all of those are important. There's no question about that. But if you only measure those things, it, it kind of goes back to what we are talking about with the blue zone. Like if you only measure longevity, if you only measure the heart outcomes, you would be missing something fundamental to the human experience. You'd be missing what we care about. We care about people being happy and fulfilled, right? In addition to them being alive. And happiness and fulfillment, like when I think about what I want for my parents again, it is that they have good function. They're able to do the things that they want to do. It's that they're happy, not stressed or anxious. It's that they, they feel their quality of life is good. What patient reported outcome measures are, and I spent you know a good, good chunk of the last part of my career on this, is basically turning those concepts into numbers by asking patients how they're feeling. You, you can ask them a set of questions and turn that into a number that you can then trend over time or benchmark against you know, the population or, or, or other benchmarks. And so the patient reported outcome measures are key to actually turning these sort of nebulous concepts about well-being into a quality measurement that you can actually intervene upon. Fulfillment is like a harder thing to measure, right? Uh, even even more difficult than some of these patient-rewarded outcome measures where we can, we can do something numerical. But one of the ways we approach um, ideas like fulfillment is a concept called patient-priorities care, which I mentioned earlier, which is this really interesting way of thinking about putting the patient's priorities, what they want, what they're looking for from their care, at the center of decision-making. And we're still working on our measurement framework around many of these aspects. But like one simple thing to look at is like, did we talk to you about your patient priorities care? And like, did you achieve your priorities? Right. So all of these are information you can only get from talking to a patient.
1: As we're talking about population health outcomes, I also wanted to ask you about What Devoted is doing to really address the issues of chronic disease. I mean, it's such an insurmountable problem right now in the healthcare system. I mean, we have six and 10 adults that have a chronic disease. It's a leading driver in the $4 trillion and spend. And a lot of people in industry are thinking that these complex, high-risk, polychronic patients that are super utilizers are simply unimpactable from a population health standpoint. Could you um, elaborate on some of the population health outcomes from the devoted model, especially in chronically ill populations, you know things like hemoglobin a one c reduction and other important metrics that's really showing that you're able to address uh, the manifestation of disease in the in the patients that you serve?
2: yeah, we're we're really excited about what we're seeing in this model because again, it's not the only thing. I, c- I consider all of this necessary but not sufficient, right? It's not sufficient because we need to measure all those other things that I was just talking about, the patient-reported outcome measures, fulfillment, things like that. But these are necessary. We can't possibly be delivering good care if we're not doing all of those things that we need, we know, save lives. And so, you know, medication adherence is a great example. Usually this is in the 50s, right? Like medication adherence, we know is a gigantic problem and we're above 90% um, on all of these measures in all of our contracts in all of our years, right? It's just an incredible, just that one statistics a statistic about how we're doing medication adherence is really a testament to um, that completeness uh, that I was talking about. Diabetes, right? So if you're talking about the members who are eligible for star ratings in 2022, we had, you know, 81% uh, eye exam rate, 85% blood sugar control rate. And by- by the way, that was in a pandemic where getting your eye exam was really hard. <laughs> like, you know, calling people and asking them to get, get care, get an eye exam was hard. So by the way, when we, when we saw that, we just sent, we said, okay, we're gonna buy a bunch of cameras. We're gonna go to people's houses and do the eye exams in their home. And that's what sort of got us over the threshold. 85% of our, our folks uh, with diabetes have uh, their blood sugar in control. And our diabetes program has seen an average reduction in A1C of 2.3 in now less than 100 days on average, which almost defies what's physically possible. You know, given that hemoglobin uh, is you know has a half life has a life of uh, 90 days. Um, seeing that kind of reduction in less than 100 days is something I haven't seen before in any other clinical program. Certainly not something that I would be able to accomplish as a PCP myself similarly hypertension right 77% of our members have blood pressure in control and our program is able to have an average reduction in systolic blood pressure of 15.2 in 40 days right but again 40 days we're reducing people's blood pressure by 15 and getting them in control Our CHF program, after one month, we're seeing a dramatic reduction in acute events by like 50%. And in fact, people who have been enrolled multiple months, we've only had like a handful of acute events. These are the kind of metrics, I mean, I have a a long list of them. These are the kind of metrics that indicate that we're able to actually get things done in a way that, again, even I, I, I consider myself a really caring PCP who does take the time with my patients, I can't achieve results like this. And it's because that there's a system behind it. Just to go into that a little bit more, one of the really important things to talk about is how we get in the door um, past the concept of of learned helplessness. So I'll just talk about learned helplessness for a second. They did this experiment, which is really sad in retrospect, um, with dogs. And in dogs, they put them Uh, They put some of the dogs in a cage where this light would flash. And then if the dog pressed on this particular lever that was in their cage, the floor would not get electrified, right? So the light would come on and the floor would get electrified. They'd get a shock. Dog would get a little shock unless they pressed on this lever. And the dogs who were pressing this lever were empowered, right? They were like, okay, I, I get it. The light comes on. I push on this lever. I avoid the shock. They put another set of dogs, the experimental group, into the same, a similar cage, but the lever didn't do anything, right? So the light would come on, try as they might, these dogs were helpless to prevent the outcome. And so nothing they did prevented the shock. Now in the phase two of this experiment, they put the dogs in these cages where one side of the floor was electrocuted, the other side wasn't. So super easy for the dog to just hop over this low wall and go onto the non-electrified side. So the light would come on, there was no lever anymore, but the dogs who were empowered would just quickly figure out that they jumped over the wall and they wouldn't get the shock. And the dogs who had learned to be helpless because nothing they did avoided the shock didn't jump over the wall. They just lay down on the side and just got shocked again and again. And that pattern is exactly what we're seeing in complex patients, right? They have learned over the course of decades that try as they might, no matter what they do, they can't, they feel get their chronic diseases under control and so most of the time they don't even pick up the phone right but because devoted is you know builds a lot of trust with them they often do but when we get them on the phone more often than not we hear things like oh no thank you so much but I've tried to get this under control for years my doctor's been trying it just doesn't work and so we start with this idea of patient priorities care what do you want what are you trying to get out of your health care and they never say, by the way, I want to lower my hemoglobin A1C by 2.3 in 90 days. They say, I want to feel less tired. I want to be able to go volunteer like I was doing before. I want to reconnect with my granddaughter. You know, I want to walk her down the aisle. Those are the kinds of things that they say. Then we say, look, we're, we're here to help you. Let us send you, for example, in diabetes, a continuous uh, glucose meter. And we send it to them. They get it. They don't have to prick themselves anymore. And we say, give us access to your data. And we show them with these rapid technology-enabled cycles, hey, look, when you took action, increase your insulin dose, had fewer carbs, went for a walk, it resulted in lower blood sugar and you feeling less tired, right? So we're linking the clinical outcomes back to their priorities. And those cycles are... Are, are are what capture the momentum and allow them to achieve those incredible results that I just mentioned to you.
0: Devoted Health is really growing fast and expanding in the U.S. in the U.S. right now. It's quite impressive. It it covers about eighty thousand people, which is double its health plan membership from a year ago. Currently, it, it employs four hundred providers and other staffers, and plans to employ about a thousand people by January as it treats more members. Could you share an overview of the market portfolio currently for our listeners and describe what's next on the horizon for the company? And as the company grows in the future, how will it replicate at scale with consistency across different markets?
2: Yeah, so we're we're right now entering eight new markets uh, for 2023. Um, So we'll be serving 13 states uh, as of January 1st. And those are Alabama, Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Hawaii, Illinois, North Carolina, South Carolina, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Oregon, Tennessee, and Texas. And we have, as you mentioned, 80,000 members now. Uh, and we'll see where we are in January. We share more after the, uh, the AEP is over. Uh, we have uh, over 1,000 employees across the country and continuing to grow our fantastic team. That's across all of uh, Devoted Health. I, As I think about scaling, I think, found that other companies that I've been really excited about often can do what they do in geography number one, but then tend to stumble as they get to geography two and geography three. And I've been to a lot of these places and you hear things when you go there, like you can feel it when you go to some of these places where great care is getting delivered. And I've heard things said like, you know, it's in the walls, right? The special sauce here is in the walls. And I don't think that's actually right. I think the special sauce are in the people, right? In the people in those initial places. And when it goes to a new geography, I think it's really hard to transplant the culture and operating processes that led to the results in the first place to the next place. And that, I was getting at that in one of the first questions you asked. I think actually that is one of the things about our virtual first model that allows us to replicate and scale in a way that um, is sort of new. We meet all the time virtually. We see ourselves as one team, one company, not a Florida-based clinic and, a, and an Alabama-based clinic, right? We're one team. And so the culture permeates everybody. Um, and that, I think, allows us to replicate and scale our model in a better way.
1: Well, Dr. Wagle, I have So much enjoyed our conversation today. I I can't thank you enough for joining us this week and the Race to Value. As we finish up our conversation today, uh, are there any parting thoughts that you would like to impart uh, to our listeners who've tuned into the podcast this week?
2: Well, first I want to say, just I'm so grateful to you for having me. Um, I think you're doing incredible work here. I I also want to say how grateful I am um, to the people that I've been on this journey with I have a job where I get to wake up every day and work with these loving, smart people who are fun and funny in order to make an impact, right? There are all these people who are making the dream that I've had for my whole life come true. And, and that's maybe the ex- most exciting news of all and, the, and the, uh, the words of inspiration that I would give folks. You know, I, I think it's easy to become jaded because of how slow progress has been in healthcare. It's always two steps forward, one steps back. But based on what I'm seeing here, the value-based care that we've all been talking about and dreaming about for years, it's possible. It is possible to do. And it's more than possible, it, it is coming. Um, the arc of history is bending towards progress. And I'm really grateful to be part of that journey. Um, and I'm grateful to you both for speeding all of us on that journey Uh, along as fast as we can go. So thank you for doing that.
1: Well, the gratitude is all here, my friend. Uh, We can't thank you enough for leading us, you know, down this journey and, you know, anything that we could ever do to uh, support devoted health as it continues to transform outcomes, provide exceptional experience and and love for the members that you serve, Uh, count us in. Again, thank you so much for joining us this week in the race to value.
2: Thanks for having me.